the norm that the loser concedes the election and declares support for the system to me is a more fundamental norm of democracy and one whose violation genuinely does threaten the well-being of our democratic system. Hi there, it's WAMC News Director Ian Pickus. And on this episode of the WAMC News Podcast, I'll talk about the Electoral College, the popular vote, and what to do when the losing president won't concede with Professor Ava Ayers, Director of the Government Law Center at Albany Law School. The Electoral College is the system by which we elect presidents and only presidents. It's an indirect system of election in which when you cast your vote for the president and vice president, the system will translate those votes into votes for people called electors. And those are the people who will actually cast their votes to decide who is president and who isn't. In terms of what's going to happen next month, December 14th is the day on which the members of the Electoral College vote to cast their votes for president. And that's the vote that determines who actually ends up in the White House. Who are they, generally speaking? The electors are appointed by the political committees in each state. So in New York State, the electors are the Democratic Committee's choices. So they tend to be people who are um, politically affiliated. In New York State, they include Andrew Cuomo, Kathy Hochul, Hillary Clinton, and her husband. Um, they include some mayors. Kathy Sheehan is one of the electors. Uh, you can't be an elector if you are currently serving in Congress, but otherwise, you tend to find most of the political luminaries from the state, elected officials. Um, and you can find the electors on the websites for the Board of Elections for your state. So in Pennsylvania, I took a look and, yep, elected officials, people who are associated with the party, um, sometimes representatives of unions, other folks. Um, and, you know, in New York state, there's a strong bet that it's going to be the Democratic slate of electors who are chosen rather than the Republicans. So the Republicans choose their slate. But those folks uh, know it's relatively unlikely because of the state's politics that they're not going to cast a vote. So on December 14th, around the country, electors will go to the state capitals to certify the results of that particular state. And with the exception of um, Nebraska and Maine, in in all of the states, it, the popular vote winner in that state then wins the electors associated with that state, right? That's exactly right. It's a winner-take-all system. Uh, it has other names, but that's the main name. And in this winner-take-all system, uh, states like New York will cast all 29 of our votes for Joe Biden and likewise in the other directions. Interestingly, this has been the more controversial feature of the Electoral College for most of its history. The idea of switching to popular vote, a national popular vote as a reform, becomes more prevalent in the mid-20th century. Before that, what people really objected to was, why do we give winners of a state all of the votes rather than some sort of proportional system where you assign electors based on what percentage of the votes people get, or a district system, which is, um, you know, Maine and Nebraska have a hybrid of this, but a district system where you divide the state up into pieces and you give people uh, electors based on which pieces they win. So in this particular race, um, that probably wouldn't have changed the outcome if we had a proportional system in, in place, uh, because Joe Biden had won a national uh, popular vote victory that was sizable enough to, to make up for regional differences. 
That's right. Although it's a great point because, of course, if you think about a different system, you think about how people might run their elections differently and how their campaigns might have been uh, run differently. But certainly the popular vote margin here was very, very substantial. Although, of course, it's important to remember that switching to a proportional system doesn't automatically mean switching to a system that accurately captures the proportions in the system. Um, the House of Representatives is a proportional system, but the heavy, heavy gerrymandering that we see with the House means that, in fact, uh, one party often has a significant advantage despite the nominally proportional system. We've done some reporting here about the um, interstate compact that is hoping to reach uh, a threshold at which the popular vote winner would then win electoral uh, votes from a state, even if he or she did not win that state. Uh, so the the national popular vote winner would decide electoral votes. Mm-hmm. Um, from your perspective, what kind of damage has it done to our system having uh, in the last 20 years two elections where the person who won the popular vote did not win the White House? It's fascinating. I mean, I remember before Bush v. Gore, uh, I thought, even though it had happened three times in the country's history, I thought, as many, many people thought, that if there was an election in which the popular vote winner, the national popular vote winner, were to lose because of the Electoral College, that it would pr- prompt a legitimacy crisis, that it would prompt you know, national outrage. And instead, polls after Bush v. Gore consistently showed that a significant majority of the American public accepted the outcome of that election. So it's difficult difficult to say. I do think it's significant, though, that throughout modern history, there has never been a majority of the American public or anything close to it that supports the Electoral College um, as a way of choosing the president. And in terms of the legitimacy of the government, it's always very hard to measure legitimacy. But I certainly think it's true that most Americans do not feel confident that they understand how our system of choosing the president works, nor do they feel confident that their views will be fairly reflected in that process of choosing a president. So I think the system is under heavy pressure, heavy legitimacy pressure. I really do think it does damage. And not just when you have a loss, um, uh, by somebody who won the popular vote nationally. I think in general, the complexity of the system and the fact that nobody can say with a straight face that it accurately captures voters' preferences, that I think is a deep threat to the legitimacy of the way we choose our presidents. Is there a parallel between uh, the U.S. deciding to allow the direct election of U.S. senators to perhaps getting to a system that that cuts out the the middleman, uh, so to speak, of the Electoral College? I mean, were there pressures uh, at that time about how we sent people to Washington in the Senate? I think that the 17th Amendment, which, um, as you say, switched the way we elect senators from a system where state legislatures chose their state's senators to a system where the public chose the senators. I think that reflects a steady movement in American history away from um, an elite choice system uh, in various ways. I mean, early on in the Republic, at the beginning of the Electoral College, we used to see electors themselves appearing as the candidates on the ballot rather than even seeing the president. So you you only knew who you were giving your power to. You didn't know what they were going to do with it. Of course you knew, but... Um, Uh, But we moved towards a system where the people are at least indicating their own preference for president. And there's been a number of moves to change the Electoral College in the same way that there was a movement towards direct election of senators. So there's no question that the current throughout American history has been 
um, to amend things in the direction of greater popular sovereignty, greater popular involvement. Um, but it's actually curious that the 17th Amendment worked, and we've had other changes to the way our election systems worked, including constitutional amendments. The 12th Amendment made some relatively minor changes. Um, so there's a real question that political scientists and historians debate about why didn't the Electoral College fall when those other less democratic mechanisms uh, did fall. And I think that's an open question. What I think you can say for sure is that given modern politics, the coalition building necessary to achieve a constitutional amendment is essentially out of reach for this foreseeable future. Um, I want to go back to something you said a couple of minutes ago, and that was that after the uh, nuttiness of Bush v. Gore in 2000, Mm -hmm. Americans uh, by and large moved on, right? Mm-hmm. And I think maybe the difference is Al Gore stood up and said, you know, I, I'm down 537 votes in Florida. I don't yeah. like this at all, but I'm accepting it. Right. And now we've yeah. got a president who says um, not only is this election rigged and fake, but I also won. Yep. And that is an illustration of how our democracy depends not just on written rules and laws, but on norms. And people talk a lot about norms, given the Trump administration's uh, gleeful breaking of so many. But I think it's really important to distinguish between norms that fundamentally our democracy depends on and norms that are mere habits. You know, For example, in the U.S. Senate, there are many, many procedural norms that helped the Senate remain for decades and decades a gentleman's club for elderly white gentlemen. That was what kept it together as an institution. And beginning, depending on how you trace it, in the 60s or 70s, those norms began to erode in some ways that were positive. The, The achievement of civil rights legislation depended in some ways on breaking some norms that had held back civil rights legislations legislation for some time. The norm that the loser concedes the election and declares support for the system, to me, is a more fundamental norm of democracy and one whose violation genuinely does threaten the well-being of our democratic system. For just the reason that you identified, we're seeing polls now that say 70% of Republicans think the election was unfair or fixed. Now, It's difficult, I think, for anyone on that side of the argument to identify specific elections. In Bush v. Gore, it would have been very easy to say it's unfair and here's why. (laughs) Gore won the popular vote. Nobody had a whole lot of questions about what the Democratic concerns were. Here you don't have that. You have it was unfair, it was rigged, but in what respect? None of the claims that we see the Trump administration making are claims that are repeated under oath in court or under penalty of perjury or in sworn filings. Instead, the court cases that we've seen are nibbling around the edges of procedural issues that should be litigated to the extent that there are real claims there. But the lawyers have not filed any sort of challenge amounting to a challenge to the fundamental integrity of the election. And even in Bush v. Gore, where you saw sharp disagreements between the justices on the Supreme Court about how burning a need existed to bring that election to a close. I mean, fundamentally, one of the issues between the majority and the dissent in Bush v. Gore was, do we need this to be over right now, or can we give it just a few more days? Um, And there was a sharp disagreement on that, but everyone agreed there was an urgency to closure. There was a need for closure. Here, 
you're seeing for really the first time in our history a president who is trying in the face of overwhelming evidence and advocacy from members of his own party to avoid closure and to avoid bringing his followers on board. And I do think that that represents a significant threat, certainly in the context of other erosions of the rule of law um, that are possible when you have one party rejecting the integrity of the system by which we choose who stays in power. So that brings me back to the Electoral College. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's been every election discussion about a faithless elector, um, you know, changing on the day of the certification on the 14th of December. But this year, there's legitimate concern, I think, that um, Donald Trump might try to pressure Republican-run legislatures to have the electors go uh, in opposition to the way the state voted. Is that at all feasible? Is that possible? Right. And let's distinguish between two things. There's the faithless elector problem and there's the legislature's toss out the election problem. Okay. So the faithless elector scenario is one where the members of the Electoral College who I've described choose not to vote for the candidate that their party put them there to vote for. Now, this has happened a few times in American history. It's unusual. In the 2016 election, some Democratic electors in Washington state decided that instead of voting for Hillary Clinton, they were going to vote for Colin Powell. Interestingly, it wasn't because they wanted Colin Powell to be president. It was because they were hoping to inspire Trump electors to likewise reject their party's candidate and choose someone who they thought would be a better uh, person for the job. The idea there was that electors are appointed relatively early in the process. And there was reason to think that not all Republican electors would support Trump as opposed to a Republican like Kasich. Um, Of course, the primaries were long over by the time of the presidential election, but the defections that they were hoping for were grounded in the fact that Trump was an insurgent candidate within the party and that some of the local elected officials and such that I mentioned might reject him. The Supreme Court held in a later challenge that Washington state was allowed to sanction electors to have what's called a faithless elector law. 33 states in the country currently have these laws that say if an elector defects or acts faithlessly, um, either they will be fined or their, their faithless vote will count as a resignation and somebody else will be immediately swapped in. So in a lot of states, you now have this rule that if an elector tries to defect, it counts as a resignation and somebody swaps in. Uh, New York State doesn't have a faithless elector law yet, although there are um, proposals and bills that have been introduced, but a lot of states have them. The other problem – now, I want to say – We've never in American history seen faithless electors swing an election, nor um, is there any realistic possibility that that would happen. Again, all of the electors who've been chosen, who've been put there, knew who they were supporting in this election um, or which side they were supporting uh, with plenty of time. And there's certainly – it's impossible to imagine you know, Bill or Hillary Clinton deciding that they want to vote for the other candidate. Um, likewise, for the other states, I don't think there's any realistic prospect of – faithless electors. Now, the other problem is more interesting because this is the one where you really have seen, as you've said, Donald Trump and a few of his allies um, calling on state elector, state legislatures to throw out the popular vote in their state and to appoint a slate of electors of their own. As to whether that's a realistic threat, obviously 2020 is a year that throws surprising things at us um, every day. I just was watching video of a tornado going down the streets of New York City, so who knows? But um, given that 
No, it's not a realistic possibility for a few reasons. One, um, the there is good reason to interpret federal constitutional and statutory law to say that you cannot change the results after the election. The states have already designated by state law how they choose their electors. You can't change that later because you don't like the results. Now, if a state, it would be a different story if the states had said earlier, look, we're going to bury something in our statutes that says that if the state legislature doesn't like the outcome, it can swap in some folks who it prefers as electors. If that was in the state law early on, maybe we'd have a, an issue there. But that still only makes it lawful. It doesn't make it probable. And there's a couple of different uh, reasons there. Uh, one is um, some of these states that are very close have um, uh, uh, have Democratic legislatures or governors in place. Um, and the governor turns out to be really important there because the Supreme Court has made it clear that the governor would have to sign off on a legislative change in the way electors are selected. So Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, which all have Republican, have, excuse me, have Democratic governors, it's not going to happen, right? The governor would obviously veto that. Um, and all of everything I've said is even is setting aside the immense political pressure that I do think those governors would face if they decided to overturn the popular vote in their state, given that it's not close. And despite the Bush v. Gore acceptance scenario, um, I do not think you would see comparable levels of acceptance for legislators who decided to throw out a popular vote. Uh, interestingly, the Florida state legislature did consider doing this during Bush v. Gore. The Republican legislature thought about it uh, and, of course, ultimately did not. So even in a situation like Bush v. Gore, where it was very, very close, where it would have been outcome determinative, you know, maximum temptation, uh, because unlike here, only one state legislature could have swung the election right. uh, in one dire direction. Here, you'd need you know three, five, depending on which state it is. Uh, and the chances, given that we've already heard Republican state legislators saying they're not going to do this, um, not all, but I mean some, I think it's just uh, impossible to imagine. So fast forwarding a little bit, uh, the new Congress will take effect after the new year. On January 6th, the new Congress then... Uh, the House of Representatives, right, will yep. count the elector, electoral college votes that were cast in the state legislatures back in December. So those are the new members who have just been sworn in, not the lame duck Congress. Yes, that's right. It's actually both houses that participate in that counting session. Um, in the event of an electoral tie, it goes into the House to determine the president. But um, but the count is actually a joint uh, uh, a joint session. So if I hear you right, I mean, Despite all the norm breaking by President Trump and his mm -hmm. refusal to concede and his wild claims that he actually won this race, procedurally, there's very little likelihood of anything falling apart for Biden between now and January 20th. He's going to be the next president. Yes, that's right. I mean, it's it's again, there are always um, outside scenarios that you can try to imagine. And as a lawyer, my job is to think defensively about all kinds of bizarre outcomes. But no, none of them, there's no path towards any of them happening. The January 6th session at which the electoral votes are counted is likely to be um, more widely viewed, I suspect, on C-SPAN than past ones because of all of the attention to the possibility of things collapsing. But what you'll see uh, during that session is Vice President Pence presiding over 
uh, the counting of the votes. They bring out these uh, fancy wooden boxes with leather belts that they strap around them. Um, it's a very cool-looking ceremony. Uh, and as the states um, recite their results and are counted, there may well be some folks, legislators, standing up to offer objections. But none of them will be outcome determinative. And it's important to remember, if you're a viewer who's watching that process on January 6th, that this isn't the first time legislators stand up and try to offer objections to the count. Uh, if you go back on YouTube, you can find video of Vice President Biden presiding over the counting session that happened uh, after Hillary Clinton was defeated by President Trump. And you'll see Biden overruling objections from his own party because they are not in order. Uh, and you'll see the count moving to its inevitable conclusion. We're going to see the same thing on January 6th. From your perspective at the Government Law Center, are there things that Joe Biden as president can do to restore uh, some American confidence in our systems that have been just uh, you know, tested to the brink over the last few years? If you look back, I mean, we had an impeachment, right? We had Russian meddling in the election. We had a president um, way on the fringes in terms of what we're used to seeing. Um, what should Biden do to get more buy-in from people that you know, the system worked? It's a really good question. And I think, you know, as a lawyer rather than a political scientist, my, my view may be um, distorted a little bit. But I would say I think emphasizing the structural way that the American government approaches challenges like this election, that is to say um, there is a committed, enormous group of people in this country who go to work on things like elections. They're at work right now working 24-7 to count the votes in their states. And those folks are what make up our government. There are 9 million people working for the federal government. And the vast, vast, vast majority of them are there to do the job of serving the people of the country, not to impose their political views on others. Within the elections machinery, I think what would be very helpful is an honest reckoning about what can be done to make the system better with certainly um, folks from both parties to the extent you can get good faith buy-in. But, you know, and I'm stepping a little bit out of my depth by talking about politics, but what I do think is that there are any number of ways that we can improve the way our election systems work. Um, everything from better security to more inclusiveness, right? Voter fraud, as far as anyone has been able to document is not a phenomenon that happens in any significant on any significant scale in this country. However, voter suppression is a real phenomenon. Right? There are people in this country who can't get to the to the ballot place to cast their vote because of any number of restrictions, um, including recently people with disabilities whose disability happens to make it challenging for them to cast their vote. I think to restore faith in the system you want both an honest effort to make sure that everyone has an opportunity for their vote to be counted, and you want, um, at the state level, you want to see engagement by legislators in ways to make the process more fair, more open, and that means you know, appointing genuine experts to look at the problems and think about what can be done better. The Electoral College can't be removed except by constitutional amendment, but the electoral procedures that we just described, uh, the electors vote on December 14th, the counting process on January 6th, all of those things are set up by statute. That is, they can be changed by the federal 
government, by Congress, if it wants to. At the state level, there are any number of procedures because the Electoral College is really just the cap on a long process that happens almost entirely in the states. And remember that the Bush v. Gore crisis happened not because of um, something going wrong in the Electoral College procedure, but because Florida couldn't figure out who won the vote in that state. Right. And so avoiding crises like Bush v. Gore is something that state legislatures can and should be working on to anticipate you know, some of the scenarios that we've um, breathed a huge sigh of relief now on November 16th. Yeah, we've breathed a sigh of relief because we're clear of some significant problems that could have happened, right? If the election had come down to one state, for example, the way it did in 2000, um, we would have all sorts of disaster scenarios suddenly on the table that weren't here before. We can plan for those things now. Um, interest in elections drops way down after the election is over, as it should. We should all be able to take a break <laughs> and a huge sigh of relief. Amen. <laughs> Thank goodness we can all take a break. But once we've taken our break, once we've um, heaved our sighs of relief that the system survived and didn't collapse and did its job, um, it's time to get back to thinking about those scenarios because you're planning not just for the next four years, but for the next 400 years. And we want to make sure that even if something is so unlikely that it only happens once in 100 years or once in 400 years, that we have a system that's capable of sustaining itself through that kind of unlikely event. If, if, any, if 2020 has taught us anything, it's that we need to be prepared for the unexpected. And I think that state legislators and policymakers can do a lot to make sure that we are. That's Ava Ayers, director of the Government Law Center at Albany Law School. And thank you so much for uh, your time and your expertise. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Ian. It's been great talking to you. All right. That does it for this episode of the WAMC News Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, I'm Ian Pickus.